Some people will do anything for a grade, you know. <laughs> Invite you to speak at their conference or whatever. <clears throat> it is a tremendous privilege to be here, and uh, that really was an outstanding presentation. I don't know if you realize how, how really good that was, and I'll just say a little bit more about it in a minute, but it really was outstanding. So it's a, it's a real treat to be here with Pastor Tim and Jay Warner Wallace. <clears throat> I say to people, the very best testimony, when you use the word testimony, now I get to sound like I've got a badge on and I'm a legal expert or something. But we mean in the Christian circles, when you tell somebody the truth about your experience in knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I like to tell people that the very best testimony is the one where you came to know Christ at an early age and uh, have followed him uh, faithfully your whole life with just the little hiccups that all sinners will have. I think that's more like the experience of some of my children. <clears throat> it wasn't my experience, and so we only have the story that we have. And uh, a bit like Jim Wallace, my uh, upbringing wasn't one in which we studied new, uh, the Bible uh, went to church regularly or anything. It re we just weren't Christians. And I, by the time I was in high school, I was um, an evangelistic atheist. I let people know that there is no God. Maybe that's kind of an uh, opposite. It means good news. It was the bad news. I wanted you to know there is no God, and we're all uh, d lost dogs on a wandering planet. And so it's a bit of an irony uh, if, if indeed we could put it this way, God has a sense of humor. Can you see one of the reasons why? Yeah. <laughs> On cold days, I remember at least some things fondly from my pre-Christian life. There's another reason that God has a sense of humor. You know, when you first become a Christian, which I did at age 20, um, you don't always know what it is you're supposed to do as a Christian. And so at the age of 20, I had a couple of pounds of marijuana. This was in pre-everybody-wants-to-make-it-legal days. Back in Texas, where they would burn you at the stake, uh, Jim, for a matchbox, a matchbox of marijuana. There is no statute of limitations. No, wait, that's just murder. Great. I was just about to say, change that story. Okay. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm witnessing to people by inviting them over to give my marijuana away. I didn't know you... I hadn't read all the Bible yet, the part that says you're supposed to flush it or burn it or whatever. So, so it's a whole new world for me as a baby Christian. I'm a professional rock and roll hippie guitar player who's reading... This is the, this is the funniest yet. I was reading the New Testament at age 20 to try to disprove the Bible. I might as well have tried to disprove 2 plus 2 equals 4. Like human beings who are so foolish, here I was, full of myself, convinced that the God of the Bible was evil, and anybody who read the Bible was stupid. I made even one bigger mistake. I was going to go straight after Jesus himself. Bad idea. Because he's not just an idea, he's the living son of God. And so I ran straight head-on into Jesus Christ. That was on a Monday. 
my whole strange new world was flipped around. By the following Sunday, that, that picture of my long hair and the beard and everything, my mother took um, of me. We were back from Colorado, this band I was in. Our old school bus broke down, so we were stuck there. She took that picture. The next picture is of me with the only Christian guy I knew at the time taking me to church just a few days later. Now what you'll notice in this picture is that I got a haircut and a shave because this little fundamentalist Baptist church pastor that came and after he was sure that I uh, believed in Jesus, thankfully, he made sure I also knew 1 Corinthians 11 teaches you that you should get a haircut. Um, I didn't know that when I got to church that day that was still way too long. But nonetheless, if you notice I have on my dad's clip-on tie, that's almost like anathema to a hippie. But little did I know the culture shock I was about to go through. I go into this little bitty church. You've got to understand the kind of lifestyle I've been living. I don't even want to tell you. It was, it, was, it was horrific. It's one that causes me pain over 45 years later to think about the sinfulness of my prior life. And yet now, this wonderful new world, I just read the New Testament. I hadn't started the Old Testament yet. I'd read the New Testament in a week, and I'm heading into church for the very first time. Unlike new life, I walk in, talk about culture shock. Why are these people sitting on wooden benches? And they all have short hair. That's kind of weird. They're all just as scared of me as I am of them. The preacher's mad. I'm happy to know Jesus. He's pounding and yeah. He, what's wrong with him? The music is the strangest I've ever heard in my life. They have a woman play. I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend you, but you've got to understand how this came across to a, a guy 45 years ago whose lifestyle was a different kind of music. They have a gal on this side playing what sounded to me like a parlor organ out of a funeral home. You push a button, it makes little quivery noises. The dude on the organ over here, I mean on the piano over here, though, I'm going to tell you, he knew how to tickle the ivories. He was giving it this at the end of the line, you know, he was pretty good. The weirdest thing is it had a hot tub with the River Jordan painted behind it, built into the wall. This was the strangest thing I had ever endured in my life. Now, you need to understand, that's the way Christianity comes across to people who've never, ever known anything about the Bible or Jesus, and you people are just weird. Unfortunately, I'm weird to them, too, now. But I can still remember it, and I try to remember the psychology of what it's like to be an unbeliever. And what I want to share with you is that I prayed a prayer that first week in the midst of this whole new, beautiful world. And by the way, I was aware, without really knowing what it meant, that somehow these strange people in this whole weird world with all the ups and downs of it, were God's people. And these, these were my new family members that lasted forever, that were closer to me than my own blood kin and the people that had been my friends. And I prayed a prayer that first week. I call it the prayer. It was just, it stuck with me. And um, I said, Lord, you're more real to me than my next breath. But if I ever find out you're not real, I'm going to quit pretending to be a Christian. Or I'll, I will not pretend to be a Christian. I'm going to give it up. Amen. 
Do you ever do that at the altar call or whatever you guys do around here with new people? You know, we, we encourage you to quit being a, doing this if you ever decide it isn't real. That's, that's what Jim Wallace was saying earlier. The reason we do it, if you're on the outside looking in and you're going, I'm giving up everything I ever wanted to do, which is to be a rock and roll guitar player or whatever. My life, this isn't the life I chose to be with all these weird people. You do it because it's true. There are benefits that you begin to realize. I mean, the amazing forgiveness of my sins was something I can't talk about to this day without getting choked up. But it isn't all easy, is it? It isn't always just wonderful. And one of the things that I want to say before I get into my topic today, most of you here are not able to relate to a Christian apologists who get all excited about, you know, looking at every little bit of evidence. I'm grateful. I am so grateful for a church and a pastor and those of you who've come out to study and think about how to defend your faith and present your faith. As I'm going to argue that is really, really important, but most of you kind of go, man, those guys are all wrapped up in this stuff. And I've spent my whole adult life doing it. I can honestly say, after 45-plus years, I'm totally convinced Jesus Christ is who he says he is for the reasons Jim has presented and so much more. But let me say to you, and there are many, many verses that talk about this, but ultimately, the ordinary, for lack of a better word, that is the best kind of Christian, the one that 99.9% of people in the world who've ever lived or living in countries where they're not even literate. They believe because it is a spiritual reality in which God himself loves them so much that even if they don't know why and how they've come to get out of the world they were in and find themselves in a whole new world, it is through the power, the supernatural power that that God imparts by his Holy Spirit to present Jesus Christ, the Savior, to them. That's what I knew that week. Lord, you're more real to me than my next breath. But my mind said, if I find out I'm just, you know, I've had too much marijuana or LSD lately or whatever, I'll quit doing it. And that's what apologetics is about. I call what we all have. Ultimately, your faith is built upon knowing God through Jesus Christ, the Savior, who gives you as part of this package plan enormous confidence in the Bible. And you you believe it, and that's good enough for you. You go, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they said it, good enough for me, right? It's good enough for me, too except that I've also had the privilege of doing the kinds of things that Jim talked about in the first session that just give me enormous confidence that says my mind isn't being fooled by something going on in my heart. They're perfectly at home with one another. That's what apologetics does. And I want to say to you, it's important if you care about your children, helping them to live in a world that wants to destroy their faith, learn apologetics. If you want to share your faith with unbelievers, they will have questions. They're always bad 
They'll have a reason, right, why they don't want Jesus. All reasons to not want Jesus are bad reasons because they're not true. There's never a legitimate reason. But you can answer them if you learn a little bit of apologetics. So I think that the personal package plan God gives us spiritually is only enriched as we uh, dig into uh, the amazing wealth of apologetic riches that are available to us in the time in which we live. If we're paying attention, and now I'm moving toward what I'm supposed to talk about, if we're paying attention all around us, not just what we know spiritually from the Word of God and the work of the Spirit of God inside of us, presenting to us our living Savior, God is not leaving himself without witness. I remember on top of those mountains in Colorado looking up at the night sky while telling people I was an atheist. I was scared to death of the power and intelligence that I could see. I didn't know how to articulate it. I certainly didn't tell others about it. I also was aware that my conscience was beginning to bother me. I, the one telling people there really are no objective moral values that we're obligated to obey was feeling guilty deep down inside for the way I had treated people, even aware sometimes at night that if there were a God and I were to die, I'd be in real serious trouble. And I would tell people to their face and ridicule them for reading the Bible and believing in a God who judged people after this life. It was an amazing contradiction, but that's the life of unbelief. If we pay attention... There are more than enough clues that support the various things that we read in the Bible. But there is what I like to call, that was my problem and is the human race's problem. We can use theological words, but I call it spiritual atherosclerosis. You know the hardening of the arteries? It's a simple fact that most people, by the time they hit their mid to upper 20s are no longer interested in spiritual things in the sense of open-mindedness to seek and to do the kinds of things that Jim Wallace did. That's really unusual. Most people are now locked into something that they've been doing uh, for a number of years. They're all about taking the kids to soccer or paying the bills or dealing with life. And they live and die based upon something that they've not been very thoughtful about. And their heart gets harder and harder and harder. Even though God is not leaving himself without witness, he's making himself clearly known, even through the things that he's made. And one of the things that's going on by which we are told and reinforced over and over and over in our culture is this grand cultural myth telling us that there is, in fact, no good reason to trust Christianity or to believe the Bible because science has somehow, whatever this might mean, disproved it. And I'm here to tell you, just simply, if you walk out of this talk with nothing else, that's simply false. It's completely false. But it was what directed my own atheism as a kid. I got it in school. I was told that there is no evidence even in the Texas public education I had all those years ago, it was that somehow evolution explained all that's interesting about human beings. And therefore, 
I walked away with the idea that there really isn't a God and there wasn't anything really to live for. We call that idea that somehow science has disproven Christianity the warfare myth. It's sometimes called the Draper White myth or metaphor. It's been around now for over a hundred years. Thomas Huxley was Darwin's, sometimes referred to as bulldog, great defender. Here's a famous quote from him that illustrates it. Who shall number the patient and earnest seekers, that is scientists, earnest seekers after truth, from the days of Galileo until now. This is 150 plus years ago that he's writing this. Whose lives have been embittered and their good name blasted by the mistaken zeal of bibliolaters. And these two scholars, although they're considered not scholarly any longer, Draper and White in the late 1800s wrote books that basically people copied for the next couple of generations saying that what Huxley is getting at here was true. That the church somehow and its theologians has always pushed back against science and that science, the true truth-seeking discipline, has been impeded by Christianity. And if we could just somehow throw off the shackles of religion, we'd sure be a lot better because science could get along much faster. I want to just simply tell you it's false. The earliest days of modern science, usually dated from 1541, the publication of uh, Copernicus on the Revolutions, was all about Christians. Copernicus was a Christian. The next generation, the whole business about Galileo, Galileo was a Christian. Kepler, who wrote the planetary laws of motion that proved what Copernicus was all about, was a devout Christian. The names of Christians for generations to come were the main people doing science. They were not afraid of science. They thought of it as thinking God's thoughts after him by studying what he's made. There are many, many historians and disciplines that talk about this, but largely the historians of science today know this whole thing about science having disproven Christianity, much less that it's always been impeded by Christianity is simply false. I hate to tell you this, because I don't really want to get after this issue, but we have to bring up somebody, and I get ridiculed by the people who want you to believe in this myth. They think you're always picking on their hero, but it's true that Charles Darwin is responsible, not directly, for the myth. Huxley, as I said, was his sidekick, but the myth starts after uh, Darwin. Why? I have to be brief, but let me just say to you, he was a brilliant scientist. As a naturalist, words have a range of meanings. As a naturalist who studied nature, Audubon was a naturalist. That doesn't mean the other kind of naturalist, which we'll see Darwin became. That's the idea that nature is all there is. It's another way of saying atheism, though he called himself agnostic, whatever the difference may be. He started off a brilliant scientist on a trip around the world on Her Majesty's ship, the Beagle, in the 1830s, and 
When he got back after five years, he had five private years of working in which he writes down, and scholars only know this after the last uh, couple of decades, these notebooks have been available, in which he describes long before the publication of On the Origin of Species, 1859, he already had become a philosophical naturalist, not just a student of nature, but now he had been convinced that nature is all there is that explains everything that's interesting, including about human beings and specifically the human mind. Now note, there's nobody that has ever even come close to proving that there is a long line of accidental features of life that have arisen, that, that have given rise to the human mind, much less human values like you shouldn't kill your children or rob from your neighbor, etc. And yet Darwin was convinced that those things had no objective value to them simply as a philosophical commitment. Why? Because he had already come to disbelieve the Bible. In his private notes, we now know he came to hate uh, the Old Testament, then the New Testament teaching about God's final judgment, the very thing that I made fun of. And so he had these commitments long before he published and became a household name eventually, including by the end, later in his life, he had even lent his name to a specifically anti-Christian group in the United States. What are the results of Darwinian approaches to biology? Short, in short, you can look around at all the things that you and I look at and say, hey, you know what, that looks designed like eyes, lungs, wings, and you are to say they look designed, but they're not. In fact, none other than Richard Dawkins, we'll see in a moment, the famous new atheist leader, has said biology is the discipline that says things that look designed. Biology is the discipline of explaining why things that look designed really are not. That was the biggest takeaway from Darwin, that there is in biology no God. And in fact, Christians who contacted Darwin, Christians who were scientists, said, well, are you saying it's possible that God somehow is using evolution to bring about all that we see? And he said, you misunderstand me completely. I'm saying, if you understand what I'm writing, the evidence is that God, if he's doing any of this, he's hidden. And this is the message that we hear, to, we hear so much Today, I just want to ask you, if you're here today and you don't believe you like I once was, do you look around at your family and the people here and do you say there are no purposes in life for human beings, just the ones we make up? There are no values we get to make them up? But that's what evolution came to be. And eventually, the whole business of naturalistic philosophy underwrote the scientific method after Darwin. It says it's illegal. This is a philosophical position. You don't get to talk about God anymore when you do science. As we're going to see, there are a lot of hypocrites around in the scientific community on this issue because they talk about God all the time, either pro-God, although the media won't tell you, or against God. I thought it was supposed to be neutral. No, it's not neutral. Post-Darwin, many people think at the levels where it impacts values, human beings specifically, 
that it does in some way impinge upon what we traditionally thought of religion. That's what we're talking about today as the outcome of this myth. So, Richard Dawkins and many of these other so-called new atheists are the preachers of the bad news around us. Most of us don't have scientific expertise to follow their arguments, but it doesn't matter. Their arguments are very, uh, very, little, si very little science involved, but a whole lot of preaching and philosophy. They tell you there is no God, and if you just are smart like we are, you, you will no longer believe in God. It is a bully worldview. They want to push you around and just tell you those 90% of people who are believers, that's claim they believe in God, that's dropped, it's, it's less than 80%, it's a shocking, alarming rate, but still most people in the United States, 70 plus percent would say they believe in God or even consider themselves Christians. We know the number is skewed doctrinally as to what they believe, but they're having a big effect just by bullying people, and younger people by droves are becoming secular slash atheist slash so-called agnostic. And so this is the world in which we live. And I want to switch gears and get to something that's the flip side of this, this myth. If it's historically false that somehow science was impeded or that it even disproves Christianity, all of which is false, let me first of all say what Jim Wallace is presenting here is right on. The Bible is overwhelmingly historical. It's about historic events where God invades human history on a rescue effort to do what humans can't do for themselves. He must himself become one of us, yet without sin, so that he might pay the price we can't pay. That's the Bible. It's historical stuff. And it ultimately centers on Jesus. This is why what Jim's doing is so important. And that science has nothing to say about history. You don't go to a science, you don't go to a physicist and can say, do you think JFK was, it was, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald that really did it alone? Well, let me see. Let me look in a test tube or run an equation or whatever. No, it's an historical issue. And that's why what we think of as Christianity's greatest central apologetic issue is Jesus Christ and his work and his resurrection. But I want to just tell you, and then I'll leave this. This is my last little plug here. Um, I did write a book on this, and if you're interested in this whole business about the history of science, the warfare myth, and how all this comes into play today uh, for Christians struggling with all sorts of opinions on the creation issues. I've got a book on that that you can check out. Now the fun part. This is the part I like to talk about because so few, few people get to hear about it. All they hear or feel is the myth. Now I want to talk about the side that almost never gets reported as a sort of support that the Bible is true. As a way of saying the historical emphasis of the Bible that God wants to invade your life and make Jesus known to you personally because he really did come in the center of history and do this work to redeem us and he's raised from the dead and he's there for you now at the Father's right hand and will make himself known to you. If we look around, 
even scientifically, there's a more than abundance of evidence to show God really is the creator. In fact, 20th century science at a time when apologetics in the Christian world was tanking, it was, it was revived slowly, kind of a backdoor process by none other than secular scientists. And it's a story that's fascinating. Let me just give you three of the ways in which this has happened and is still with us. And the propaganda and confusion about these things is so rampant that it's amazing, and yet there's so much quality material out there, um, it's, it's a shame. But number one, there is evidence for a creation that was discovered by people who had no interest in discovering such things because they didn't believe in it. And of course, we're talking about what came to be called the Big Bang. The idea of creation out of nothing, not taking something that's already there and reshaping it, is completely new and unique to the Bible. And, and no other religion or worldview has ever conceived of such a thing. It's unique. It doesn't make sense to most pagan minds. And yet, this is exactly what was discovered about 100 years ago, and people didn't like it. They, when they started seeing the evidence for it, the, the, the scientists who were atheists hated it, and they made fun of it. In fact, that's where the term Big Bang came from, because people were saying, this looks like there was a creation event. It looks like the world came into existence out of nothing, and now the universe is expanding. And so they said, oh, the Big Bang. Everybody's going to the church of the Big Bang and all of this. And eventually the guy that coined the term, Sir Fred Hoyle, who hated the Bible from all that I can tell up until he died, nonetheless came to be one of the most famous, rich minefields for quotes on how if you don't believe that there was a creator and a designer, you're like the person that believes a tornado could blow through a junkyard and afterward you'd have a fully functional commercial aircraft. This is the same guy that made fun of all of that sort of stuff. And he was one of many who were impacted by the things that we're going to talk about. But first was the Big Bang. Let me just mention this, because I don't have time to go into this, but you can see it in the book if you're interested. Young Earth creationists, old Earth creationists talk about this. They may not all use the term Big Bang, but it's considered actually evidence is just interpreted differently based on people's view of the age of the earth. So even Answers in Genesis utilizes in some of its books the very notion of the idea, even though it's not called the Big Bang, the expansion of the universe as evidence for the creation. There's a reason. It's because it's been around and it hasn't gone away even when people have wanted it to go away now for about a hundred years. Even Einstein who initially fudged his field equations in relativity because they hinted at a creation, later recanted it, said it was the biggest mistake of his entire scientific career, and he was famously, uh, he met with Edwin Hubble. Uh, we get the Hubble telescope uh, from Edwin Hubble, who discovered the expansion of the universe through looking through that Mount Wilson glorious old uh, telescope out there in uh, north of uh, Los Angeles. And so he went and looked through the telescope 
Um, that is, Einstein did with Hubble around him, and uh, it was a big deal in the news. People don't know a whole lot about that today. It continued to be talked about. I could give you on and on and on. It's well documented. People that know this field, whether Christian or not, know what I'm talking about. I'm not making this up. I'm not just using some little uh, thing that only Christians agree on. The evidence for the Big Bang is so overwhelming that it's become a major philosophical problem for atheists. In fact, just after Stephen Hawking became a household name, no longer just a scientific black hole expert, he wrote a book that made him famous, even though few people understood it, Brief History of Time in the late 80s, and in which he argued, well, I think I can figure out a way to say, in light of the Big Bang evidence, that the universe looks finite, but it's really not. And everybody, including scientists, never bought the idea. It didn't make a lot of sense. Nonetheless, right after that, NASA came forward with just one of many projects that were utilized to try to confirm various aspects of the evidence for the Big Bang. It was called COBE, the Cosmic Background Radiation Explorer. And the head of the project, and I've watched him for years, he won a Nobel Prize for this, George Smoot, the head of the project, I can never find any evidence that he's at all interested in the Bible, nonetheless came out and said that it looked to him, when they first discovered this evidence coming in on their monitors in Houston, that it looked like the fingerprint of God, that God had created the universe. And he said, to me, it looks like the clearest evidence we've ever had that Genesis got it right, that this is really the truth, that God created out of nothing. It is enormously dip, a difficult question for atheists. Let me talk about a second scientific issue, and this may be my last one. DNA has been around now well, it's been around a long time, but it was discovered, the structure, in the 1950s. Francis Crick and James Watson, they won Nobel Prizes for it. And um, it is incredibly complex. It's so complex that our friend Richard Dawkins even admitted that one DNA molecule has more information, complex specified information in it, then it's contained in an entire set of Encyclopedia Britannica's. You old people with Carmen Gia's and all that, you know, those things that you used to have on your shelves. And you have, you have trillions of DNA molecules just in your body. So just one of them has that much information. And it led the discoverer, both Crick and even Dawkins was caught, admitting that it looks like something intelligent has designed it. In fact, they went on to say their best explanation, since they refused, Crick and Dawkins are atheists, that it was probably discovered or probably created by aliens. I've got my own alien slide, uh, Jim. We all love aliens, you know. Um, they refused to say that God created. It looks, it looks designed. Most, most Christians would look at it and say, oh, God left his fingerprints. Right, Jim? Is it reasonable? No, it's not reasonable. I think an alien invented it. I can't convince... Atheists will always have an answer. Um, let me just quickly go through my last point here, and we could say so much more. But this one here is the most troublesome to atheists. It's called the fine-tuning of the universe. 
It's been around especially since the 1970s when philosophers and physicists especially were debating it, and it's never gone away. And we're not talking about things like, you know, the distance of the moon from the earth and the way it affects our tides or the distance of the earth to the sun or we'd be too hot or cold or the distance of our galaxy even from other galaxies in the Milky Way or even our entire Milky Way galaxy in relation to other galaxies. None of those things are we talking, I think I said that wrong a minute ago, but the solar system, all of those things are not what we're talking about. We're talking about things that are very, very strange, the decay rate of beryllium and all of the relationships between the four basic forces, strong and weak nuclear force and electromagnetic, all of these kinds of strange properties that are so fundamental to modern rea to reality, created reality, that if they are not incredibly fine-tuned, there could be no life at all. And indeed, it's so weird that people sit around trying to figure out how can we either get around it or what should we make of it. And let me just give you one brief example. This is a famous one. Hugh Ross, the Christian astronomer, came up with this one with regard to the ratio of protons to electrons. Okay, the guys that count this are weirder than... I changed my major too, Jim. I was an accountant, and I said, I can't handle that, you know. I, I, You've got to be too smart. I'm sorry, you accountants, but I have my best friend who was, he went on to get his, his, his accounting degree do my taxes for me. So there are some people who do this sort of thing. So imagine, who are the guys that know how to figure out that the ratio of electrons to protons has to be so exactingly precise that it's 1 in 10 to the 37th power? Now, if you don't... If you're like I am, you just need a calculator to do 3 plus 3, right? I can do 2 plus 2. It's way more zeros than any of you have ever had in your bank buck. Let's just put it that way. So Hugh Ross gave an example of how we can understand how big this number is. He said it's like if you were to take dimes and stack them up on a square mile, three feet deep, on the North American continent, just stack them up mile wide or mile square, three feet deep, you'd have enough money to pay off the national debt. Pretty good. This is like a children's sermon. You're supposed to always have, know the answer in advance. I'll tell you, it's no. So here's the, here's the question. Is that 1 in 10 to the 37th power dimes? No, it isn't. You're smart. Now what we're going to do is we're going to stack them across the entire North American continent all the way to the moon, roughly a quarter of a million miles away. Now do we have 10 to the 37 power dimes? You'd have to be sure no solar winds knocks it down. That'd be slow to count them again. But is that, is that the number we're looking for? Right. I'll give you a hint. The next one you say yes, like you really knew the answer. Multiply that stack that goes all the way to the moon by a billion. And now you have, within a handful, of course, 10 to the 37 power dimes. So with just one of what usually are considered dozens of these fine-tuning constants, just one of them, what scientists and philosophers are debating is, why is it so that it has to be that accurate? It would be like if God were to take those billion stacks of dimes and put them in a giant bingo hopper. Some of you are old enough to remember bingo, I know. With the Carmen Ghia, right? And he takes one dime 
and he marks a little red spot on it, tosses it in, and he has Gabriel spin it around and mix them all up, and then he calls you in. And he says to you, I've got good news and bad news for you. What, Lord? Well, you get to be the person that if you pull out the red marked dime, people will thank you that life gets to exist. Here's the bad news. If you miss it on your first try, there will be no life. Good luck. Good luck. That's exactly the discussion that's going on. And so my illustration of this, atheists have an answer for everything. I mean, this is the way worldviews work. So there are multiverses, but it all boils down to essentially we're lucky to be here. And I like to illustrate it this way. I've had atheists tell me that it's much like winning a lottery. In advance, you could never predict with any accuracy who's going to win it. The odds are incredibly small. But what they're not telling you, that with just one of these fine-tuned constants, it's not like saying, oh, I could have never predicted who would win it. It's more like this. This is why they continue to find it interesting. Imagine, what is the motto that forever has been on your radio here in Kentucky? Somebody's got to win, might as well be you, right? So go pour your money into this thing. So here we go. Imagine that every Wednesday Wednesday night they announce who won that way. I don't even know how this works, but let's just pretend it's a mega million gazillion dollars. And on Wednesday night, this next Wednesday, you hear Ted Cable won the lottery. That's kind of shocking. I didn't think he was into that sort of thing. They interview me, and Ted Cable says, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm going to tithe to my church and to my seminary, and I'll never do it again, you know, I don't believe in it or whatever, right? The very next week, they only do it once a week, the very next week they, they announce it, the bazillion, gazillion dollars was won by none other than Ted Cable. And they interview me now, and I say, you know what? I don't care what anybody thinks about me anymore. I start my own church, my own school if I want. <laughs> the very next week, they interview me. Ted Cable won again. This is amazing. This is the luckiest guy in the world. And while I'm sitting there, you know, and I'm kind of rolling in the dough, I'm saying, you know what? I am so lucky. Somebody's got to win. Keep putting your money in. It might as well be you. And that's my message for the rest of my life. Now, at some point, a person is going to say, wow, this is really crazy. That's weird. Would you? I want to buy a, my life savings worth of those lottery tickets because look how lucky Cable is. Is that what they would say? That's like the children's sermon. No. What would they say? It's rigged, it's fixed. So that's the way the universe looks if you're care, caring to look. In conclusion, you and I have a faith that's based upon something that's every bit as real as anything this world can offer. It's more real. The evidence points us to the truth of the Bible, specifically to the truth of the Savior, the God-man Jesus Christ. But your faith is grounded in the truthfulness of his word. And God's hints are everywhere to confirm that his word is true. And he's done it so that you and I won't have to labor around and thrash around in the dark to see whether or not we ought to believe it. 